At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. Uh, so as we get going this morning, I have a question for you. How many of you, show of hands, have had the opportunity to do an escape room? So, de decent chunk of you, most of you. Okay, second question. How many of you, the first time you did an escape room, actually escaped? Okay, a little bit less, a little bit less. If you've never had the chance to do an escape room, uh, let me bring you up to speed. They've been growing in popularity, but essentially you and a group of people get locked in a room together, usually for a determined amount of time, and in that room are a whole bunch of puzzles. There's usually a theme and a whole bunch of puzzles that you have to solve to try to get out of the room. And it's a pretty fun and challenging experience. I got the chance to do uh, an escape room for the first time last year with a group of our life group leaders, and it was a, it was a fun experience. Mostly it was fun because there were people in the room who had actually done an escape room before because they kind of knew what to do. Like, I think if I had just walked in and had no knowledge, I'd be so confused. Like, I'm like, how do these three symbols on this wall point to this maze that has some letter that I'm supposed to put together some object so I can get out of this place? Like, I'm not that smart. So, um, but, but uh, escape rooms have been uh, really growing in popularity lately. What's interesting to me about that is that, uh, you know, we pay money to go into a room that's an exercise in frustration. I mean, I read this week somewhere that somewhere between 15 and 30% of people escape the escape room experience when they go. Less, less than half. So, so why do we pay money to be frustrated to solve puzzles we can't solve in hopes of getting escape? Well, we like the challenge of it, right? We like the teamwork and the camaraderie and all this thing. But, but what I was realizing this week is there's something that underlies that that actually makes the escape room experience enjoyable and all those things enjoyable. You know what it is? It's the promise that you're going to get out. I don't think the escape room would be as fun of an experience if you went into that room knowing that there wasn't someone on the other side of the door that after an hour was going to come unlock it for you so that you could walk out of that room regardless if your team was smart enough to solve the puzzles or not. Right? That, that's the enjoyment part. Because you know you're going to get out, you can enjoy the challenge. If you weren't going to get out, I don't think anybody's signing up to be like, well, can I be frustrated and wonder if I'm actually going to die in this room? Like, nobody's signing up for that. That's not growing in popularity. The promise of deliverance becomes the underpinning because, you see, we, we hate actually being trapped, don't we? We hate being stuck. We, we hate finding ourselves physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally in places where we feel like we can't actually move forward and get to where we want to get. But, but the reality is being trapped and stuck is part and parcel to the human experience, I mean, most of us actually seem to live lives in an ongoing escape room. 
where we're stuck, trapped, oftentimes in struggles emotionally, physically, and behaviors we don't like, things within our hearts that we despise. It, it seems personally and even globally, we, we live in experience where we're always desiring some sort of escape, some sort of deliverance. For instance, here's an example that I think helps us realize this. If I were to ask you the question, what are the things in your life, what do you most need delivered from? What do you think your answer would be? Note the question. Note what I'm asking. I'm not asking, what do you want? I, I want more money. I want a better job. I'm not asking what you wish. I wish this were true. I wish this had never happened to me. What I'm asking is, what do you need delivered from? What are the things in your life that you look at and you think, God, would you please do something about that? Because I can't seem to do something about it. Would you rescue me from this? And I imagine if we take a moment to think about, all of us have things that come to mind. Maybe it's a, a negative behavior that you experience, that you find yourself often trapped in or prone to. Lying, overindulgence of food or money, inappropriate relationships, lust. Maybe it's negative emotions that you struggle with, anxiety, anger. Maybe it's effects of your past that always seem to come up and haunt you or bite you in the butt at the wrong time. Maybe it's physical sickness, disease. Take a second, think about it. Maybe take a moment and jot something down in your notes or on a piece of paper. What do you most need delivered from? You see, when you ask that question, you realize we all struggle with things that we're seeking escape and deliverance from. I mean, if I were to be honest with you, one of the things I've struggled with really recently in, in my life is just desiring deliverance from anger and criticism. I'm, I'm so prone easily towards anger. Like, I feel like I'm the Hulk. I'm just always angry. And it's easy to get up here, and well, I sound angry sometimes up here too. That's the reality. But if you ask my family, they'll know that. And, and I'm prone towards criticism. I'm prone to critique in my thing. And there's multiple times in prayer where I'm like, God, help me. Would you just take it away? Make me happy, joyful. Like, do something. Right? We, we all have these things we're, we're seeking escape from. Now, I want you to take whatever you thought of, whatever you jotted down, I want you to hold on to it. Because I think the passage we're going to look at today is actually going to speak to whatever that is in your, your life. But it's going to take some work. So we're in the third week of this series that we've called Fulfilled, where we're studying through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew as he kind of tells the story of Jesus' birth and his initial childhood. And as Matthew tells this story, he continues, as he's telling the story of Jesus, to make certain connections of Jesus' life back to prophecies that came hundreds of years before Jesus showed up in the Old Testament. And he keeps repeating this phrase, this was to fulfill what the prophets had said. And so we've been studying over these few weeks through Matthew's gospel, through these kind of fulfillment passages, and exploring what they teach us about who Jesus is, but also what that means for our life. And today we come to our third fulfillment passage, and it's a bit of an odd one. I, I read it earlier, but I kind of want to take a look at it again. The passage begins as he kind of moves to his third passage with Matthew relaying the story of 
Joseph receiving a dream from God. Verse 13 of Matthew 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. I love Joseph in this story. Joseph becomes such an example to us of faithfulness and obedience. Earlier, the angel shows up to Joseph and says, Hey, your wife's going to have a kid. It's not yours. But don't leave her, marry her. And when she has the kid, take him and name him Jesus. And Joseph does that. God shows up again to Joseph in a dream. And he says, hey, rise, take your child, go to Egypt. And I love Matthew's description because he just quotes a verbatim. What's he do? He rises, takes the child, goes to Egypt. Joseph throughout the story becomes a model of obedience to God's call. And so he does, and they go to Egypt. We see this journey to escape Herod and and the genocide, essentially, that he will bring. But then in verse 15, Matthew makes this odd little aside. Again, he continues this fulfillment theme. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, it's an odd fulfillment in a way because this really doesn't seem very much like a prophecy. Matthew's actually quoting from the prophet Hosea, who had prophesied to Israel hundreds of years, the southern kingdom of Israel, hundreds of years before Jesus. And if you go back to the original prophecy in Matthew 11, it doesn't initially stand out to you as what we would usually classify as a prophecy. This is what it says in Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, And out of Egypt, I called my son. Usually when we think of prophecy, we think of something that foretells something, something that's going to come. This doesn't seem like a prophecy. This just seems like a description of what happened. Like, yeah, Israel was my child and I called him out of Egypt. Like, well, how's that a prophecy? Well, One of the things we have to understand is that when the New Testament authors talk about God's fulfillment of prophecies, there's two ways that they talk about it. One of the ways they talk about it is what's called direct fulfillment. We've seen this already in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll see a prophecy like Isaiah where it'll say, uh, behold, the virgin will conceive. Or we looked at last week the prophecy from Micah that says a king's going to be born in Bethlehem. And there's a direct fulfillment of that. Matthew's trying to show, hey, Mary's a virgin. She had a kid. Virgin conceived. Jesus is the king. Or he comes along and says, hey, king's born in Bethlehem. It's fulfilled. But there's a second way that prophecies are often fulfilled in the Bible. What we would call an indirect fulfillment. If you want the big fancy theology word, which you don't want, but I give it to you anyway, is typology. That in the Old Testament, God has placed certain types, certain elements that are meant to foreshadow a way in which he's going to work in a much greater way. Jesus fills up to the fullness the original meaning and shadow that God had placed in his word before. When Matthew gives us this fulfillment passage, he's pointing towards an indirect fulfillment, meaning Jesus is filling up a bigger theme or a bigger way in which God was working among his people. And in order to see that, you kind of got to dig a little bit for a second in Hosea chapter 11. So I want to highlight two things. I want you to see how the beginning of this passage starts and how it ends. Now, Hosea 11 comes in a series of prophecies to God, right? There's 10 chapters before it. Hosea begins actually with a story of Hosea and his wife, 
uh, Gomer. God calls Hosea to marry his wife, um, but his wife keeps cheating on him. And it's meant to be uh, an illustration of the way Israel continues to cheat on God. But Hosea is called to remain faithful to Gomer the way God remains faithful to Israel. He then moves in chapter 5 to give a series, Hosea does a series of judgments against Israel for their sin and for their unfaithfulness. And then in chapter 11, he begins to deal with that, but then introduces the concept of hope, of a future work of God. So the chapter begins this way. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fled. So, God essentially begins by saying, hey, I called Israel out of Egypt to be my people, but, but they kept disobeying me. And so judgment's going to come. He kind of wrestles with this. And then in verse 10, we don't have all the time to dig in this. I encourage you to read and study it on your own, but I just want to highlight kind of the main theme. In verse 10, he, he begins to move in a new direction. So he deals with the issue that he's not going to give up on his people. In verse 10, he says this, They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So Hosea, in his original thing, gives this kind of word. He begins by reminding that God had done a work of redeeming his people out of Egypt. We'll unpack this more in a second. And calling them out. But then recognizing that in their disobedience, they fell trapped into sin. And so he ends the passage by promising of a new work that God's going to do in leading his people out of the places of oppression and slavery into their eternal home. Matthew, in sharing Hosea 11, connecting Jesus' story, wants us to see that Jesus is actually connected to the movement that's portrayed in Hosea chapter 11. That what God had done originally in Israel, God had promised to do afresh and anew for all people. And that Jesus was connected to that story. You see, Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. And the Jewish audience's minds would have been shaped by the Exodus story. The story of God's rescue of his people out of Egypt to bring them to the promised land. And Hosea foreshadows that there's another work that God's going to come. And what Matthew is trying to get us to see is that Jesus is actually the fulfillment, the filler-upper of that greater work that God is going to do. Matthew's whole point in reminding us that out of Egypt God called his son is that Jesus is the greater Israel through whom God works to bring a new and final exodus for his people. Now, that, that might be like, whoa, what on earth are you saying, right? So I, I, the, re, the reality is, for Matthew, his audience was deeply shaped by this story. But in our Western minds, we're not so easily saturated in that story. We don't make the connections that Matthew tries to make and Hosea tries to make and the way the Old Testament points towards Jesus in this way as readily. And so for us, to understand, for us to understand, I think, what both this fulfillment passage points to and how it relates to our life, don't worry, we're going to come back to the question I asked at the beginning. We've got to do some, some biblical work, 
right? I, I got to kind of put my Bible teacher hat on for a second, and I got to help you see some things out of the Old Testament of how God's original work in the Exodus story gets filled up in Jesus. And so, so we got to dig, right? So I'm going to ask you to hang with me. Don't, don't get too bored for a second, all right? Because I think my job I've always resonated with Paul's words in Colossians 1, where he tells the Colossians that his calling was to make the word of God fully known. Right? When we come to church on Sunday, like I'm not just here to give you a pep talk. You can go anywhere for that. What I'm here to do is to root you in the word of God so you have an understanding and stability to draw from to navigate your life in knowing and following him. So sometimes that takes work. So I'm going to invite you in. Ready? So can you just lean in with me? Maybe even physically, just for a second. Just give me a little lean in, tell me you're with me, right? If not, take a nap, pick you up on the backside. So, in order to understand this, we have to begin understanding the movements of the Exodus. And I'm going to move quickly. I gave you a chart, so you can go back and check kind of the references. But when you read through the story of the Exodus, and remember, the Exodus is the defining reality of the nation of Israel. It's their identity, it's their purpose, it shapes their relationship with God, it's who he is, who they are. And when you study through the Exodus, you realize there's kind of seven major movements in that story that shape the narrative and shape God's people. The Exodus story begins with slavery. Israel is in Egypt, and they're in bondage and enslaved. Their lives are bitter. They find themselves in a place of oppression and a world that is against God and his ways. And the problem is they've begun to buy in to Egypt's culture and narrative yet their hearts long ultimately to be free. God then moves and hears the cry of his people and begins to respond by raising up a deliverer. Moses comes on the scene early on in Exodus 2 and 3, and he emerges as the one who's actually going to deliver God's people out of Egypt and from their oppression and slavery. His presence dominates the entire Exodus story. God works through Moses, calls Moses, leads Moses to come back, and God ultimately begins to rescue his people from slavery by bringing salvation to them. God essentially begins to bring a series of plagues against Egypt. He actually judges their gods, if you go back and study it in the original. And then he judges their ultimate God in his final act, which he essentially says, I'm going to bring judgment against the firstborn son of the nation of Egypt. Egypt. But God graciously provides for his people a Passover lamb to take the place of that son. And so on the night God brings his ultimate judgment against Egypt, the Israelites experience salvation. They don't experience the judgment that God brings. God leads them then from this point on a path of redemption, beginning a journey out of Egypt. Ultimately, they pass through the Red Sea, which many of us know that part of the story, in which God delivers them ultimately from the power of Egypt over their lives. They pass through the sea and come out on the other side. On the other side of God's work of redemption through the Red Sea, God then begins to establish a kingdom with his people. He first forms a covenant with them and says, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. He reminds them of their identity, that they're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he gives them a law, a way in which they are to live under his rule and kingship. That's what the Ten Commandments is all about. It's here's how you live in light of God being your king. God, it goes beyond that, though, to say, as you live as a kingdom that I'm forming, I'm going to come and dwell in your midst. And from Exodus 25 all the way through 40, God gives elaborate instructions twice over to the people 
of their dwelling with him, that of his dwelling with them in the tabernacle, that he's going to be among them and his presence is going to mark them. And then finally, the end of the Exodus narrative, how it carries into then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is God promises to lead them to the home he promised them, the promised land, a new land where they will be free to live under God's rule and reign and to be a light to all of the nations. So quick overview of the Exodus movements and story. The whole point is, when we look back at the Exodus, is that it's the work of God to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt for flourishing in the promised land. That's the story of the Exodus, and it's marked by those movements. Now, why does that matter? Why is that important? Because what Matthew and the New Testament authors begin to pick on that's prophesied in the Old Testament is that what God did in the Exodus, he now wants to do in a much greater way for the entire world. That God wants to bring a freedom to all people. And that he's ultimately going to do that by initiating what we would call a new exodus. And when you get into the New Testament, what you begin to see is that the New Testament authors actually take these themes that we see in the original exodus and they begin to point to how Jesus is actually filling up those themes in a greater way for all people. You see, the New Testament authors remind us time and again that all people find themselves in slavery not to a nation or a country, although literally that's been true in history, but in terms of the biblical authors, they find themselves in slavery to sin. Jesus reminded people in John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see, all of us live under the oppression of sin. It plagues our world. We feel its oppression in our lives, our work, our streets, everywhere we go. And the problem is, we're under that slavery, but we've bought into the system. We've trusted it. We're the cause of our own slavery because we continue sinning. If we just stopped sinning, we'd be fine. You ever tried that? (laughs) Have you ever tried, just for a week, to tell the truth every time? Exact truth, full truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. I can't even make it two days. I feel like it's like that line from uh, part three of The Godfather, if you've, ever, if you've ever seen that, where Michael Corleone, he's like trying to get out of his life of the mafia that he's been stuck in for like years and years and years, and he has that famous line. I won't do my Al Pacino impression because I'm not very good at it, but it, it's that great line where he's like, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Like that's how I feel about sin. It's like right as I feel like I'm starting to make headway, bam, I'm back. And no matter how much I try, I can't get it out. And the Bible reminds us, that's our reality. We are slaves to sin. We live under its bondage and its oppression. It's why we need a deliverer. But the New Testament authors remind us that Jesus is the greater deliverer. Hebrews 3 reminds us, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. The New Testament reminds us time and again, Jesus is the greater Moses. If you actually go back into Matthew, and we don't have time to dig all that today, Matthew shapes, or not shapes, he highlights how in Jesus' story, 
He very much mimics the reality of Moses. Moses was born in an oppressive regime that sought genocide to kill Hebrew children. Jesus was born under an oppressive regime that sought a genocide to kill Hebrew children, to snuff out what God was doing. And all through this, the New Testament tries to show us Jesus is the new Moses. He's the greater deliverer that has come to lead people out of their slavery to sin. Through Jesus, God works to bring salvation. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In the same way that God provides a Passover lamb so that the Israel would not experience the judgment that God would bring against Egypt, Jesus gives himself as our Passover lamb so we would not experience the wrath and judgment of God, but he would take that upon himself on the cross so that we might be saved. Jesus leads us on the path of redemption. First Peter highlights that baptism, the image of death and resurrection, which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven is at the right hand of God. Right? God leads, just like God led Israel from slavery through the Red Sea out to the other side, Jesus passes through death and comes out on the other side to new life in order to lead God's people in their own death out that into resurrection. That's what we celebrate in baptism. Baptism is the picture of us being united to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection that we might be redeemed. Jesus brings and ushers in God's new kingdom. Hebrews 9.15, therefore he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from their transgressions committed under the first covenant. But this is a new covenant that Jesus brings. And this new covenant brings a new identity now. We're fully the people of God. And in that, we're not just given a law, but we're given the spirit so God's law could be written on our hearts so that we could live under his rule and reign all the time. And so we become part of God's kingdom. Not only that, those who follow Jesus now become a dwelling place for God. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And we individually and together form the place where God now dwells. He dwells in his church, his community of his people. And then God is leading us home into the new creation. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And God leads us into our ultimate promised land, the new creation. So, what's the new Exodus? Right? The new Exodus is the work of God in Jesus to rescue his people from slavery to sin for flourishing in the new creation. What God did for Israel 
He now wants to do for everyone in and through the work of his son. And this is the connection that Matthew and Hosea are trying to make. They're trying to say God's bringing a new exodus, and that new exodus is coming in Jesus. He's leading you from slavery to sin into the flourishing of eternal life. Or maybe you would say it this way, if I was to give you a key idea from this passage. That in Jesus, God offers deliverance. He offers deliverance. He wants to lead people from the places where they're trapped and enslaved to sin and deliver them to the place that he designed them for where they can flourish with life in life with him. And so when Matthew comes along and says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And when Jesus goes into the place of Egypt, the place and symbol of slavery, and comes out, he's trying to display for you what Jesus did. He now wants to offer to you to step into your personal Egypt and rescue you out of that place so that you can be brought into the promised land. So what do you feel enslaved by? What are the things you wrote down? What did God bring to mind when you think, what do I need delivered from most? What Matthew wants you to realize is that Jesus is here to bring you deliverance from that. From the sin that plagues your life. From the things that you're entrapped by. That he is the greater deliverer to lead you from the kingdom of darkness into the beloved kingdom of his son. And that that life of flourishing with God that you were created for, Jesus is here to lead you into that. But in order to experience that, there's two things that I think we need to do in response. So I think that's the the greater theme that Matthew's trying to point us towards. So how do we respond then? Two things that I think we can do in response to experience the deliverance that Jesus has for us. First, We have to recognize our need for deliverance. You see, Israel's problem was that they continued in sin and failed to continue to follow the deliverer that God had given them to their ultimate destination. God sends a greater deliverer in Jesus. But the way we experience his deliverance is by first recognizing that we need his deliverance. Right? You, you won't follow a deliverer if you don't think you need delivered. So have you recognized that? Have you recognized your Egypt, the place where sin touches your life and enslaves you under its power and oppression? And have you recognized that you're unable to do anything about it? And that's all of us. All of us are in this boat. Romans 3 reminds us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are under the power of sin. And apart from the work of Christ, we're enslaved there and cannot get out. We're unable in our own power to experience the freedom that God designed and created us for. The good news is Jesus brings deliverance. He's the deliverer. But if we're to follow the deliverer, the first place we have to begin is by admitting we need deliverance. This is always the power and key to finding freedom. I think one of the great... uh, uh, illustrations in our day of this uh, is the, the work of the Alcoholics Anonymous and their 12-step program. 
And, and if you go and follow the 12 steps, which, which actually are rooted in, in Christian principles, um, it's not a directly Christian program, but, but there's some, some overlap there. But when you look at their first two steps, I think they highlight for us and illustrate for us that we need to recognize we need deliverance. Millions, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people have discovered freedom from alcohol addiction through the 12-step programs. But you know where that's, those steps begin? Here, here's the first one of the 12 steps. You confess. We admit we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. This is why when they get together, there's always, I mean, we, we kind of joke around about it sometimes, but it's serious. When they get together, there's the natural part that says, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. Because they constantly remember, I was trapped and I had no power to get out. And so I needed to find deliverance in something beyond me. I was unable to manage the chaos of my own life. So what's the second step? I came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And what always saddens me about it is I'm like, that's Jesus. That's the power. Jesus is the power. You've got to get him. The power isn't in you. But notice, notice the key. I recognize I'm powerless, so I seek deliverance in something greater than me. See, that's how we discover deliverance in all the aspects of our lives where we feel trapped and slaved by sin. We admit and confess, I don't have the power to deal with this. And we look for a deliverer. And so if you're going to find deliverance from the areas of your life that you highlighted, that you marked, it has to start with you admitting you have a problem. I mean, we're so good at trying to manage our own sin, our own negative emotions and behaviors. We try to avoid them, minimize them, pretend like we don't have a problem. I mean, my whole life, I've been an expert excuse maker. I have reason after reason why it's not my fault, why it's not reality, why it's not really as bad as you think it is. I'm so good at deceiving myself, and we all are. But the problem is, when you live in that way, when you're constantly excusing yourself, constantly minimizing, constantly trying to avoid the reality of what you are enslaved by, you don't change. Because you never look for the deliverer who can actually lead you to change. You think you've got it under control. But I'm here to tell you, you don't. You don't have it under control. You can pretend, but you think and live long enough, you know you don't. And it's only when you're willing to actually admit that, that you begin to move towards finding the freedom that your heart cries out for. So you've got to recognize that you need deliverance. And then the second thing is you need to receive your call back home. You need to receive your call back home. I mean, that's what I love in Hosea, of the words of the new Exodus. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The good news of the promise is deliverance is God is calling. He initiated. He's done the work. And he's now hearkening you from that place of darkness to come back home to him and experience the freedom that your heart cries out for. Your job is just to receive that call. To hear it and respond to it. How do you do that? 
You trust and you follow the deliverer. On the night that Israel began its journey of deliverance, God had prepared them. Part of the Passover was they were to eat it ready, ready for when the call came. They could get up and they could flee Egypt when Pharaoh would release them. When that came, they began to experience, they responded to the call. Now imagine if you were in Israel that night and you're like, ah, I'm good. I got time. And the call comes out. Hey, Pharaoh said we can go. We can get out. We can leave the land. We can get to be moved. And you're like, nah, I'm good here. I'm fine. But unfortunately, that's how most of us live. Jesus shows up on the scene and he's like, I I got good news. I, I can deliver you. I can bring you from the place of bondage. And we're like, I'm good. I got time. And he calls to us and he says, come home to me. And we're like, I kind of like it here, though. It's it's not that bad. It's just slavery. You see, it's only those that would trust what God does through Moses and respond when the call came that would experience the deliverance that God would bring. Now, the journey wasn't easy. I'm not saying that. There was a journey. But that's where it begins. It begins by recognizing your problem and then trusting and following the deliverer. You trust him by putting your faith in Jesus, trusting that he truly is the king of all kings, that he has died for your sins and risen again. And you follow him by learning to live life his way, obeying what he has called us to do. And as you do that, you begin to experience the flourishing and freedom that God wants for all of his children. You see, out of Egypt, God called his son. Jesus went into Egypt so that he could rescue us from Egypt and bring us home. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what he's done. It's why we can trust in following him. I'll close with this. Donald Miller has a great reminder of this in his book, Blue Like Jazz. He tells the story of going to a concert with a friend and hearing was a folk singer and and the singer recounts a story of a friend of his who's a was a marine I'll, i'll just read it it's it's so good miller writes this he says the folk singer said his friend was performing a covert operation freeing hostages i'm sorry he wasn't a marine he was a seal get that right they'll be mad if i get that wrong The folk singer said his friend was performing a covert operation, freeing hostages from a building in some dark part of the world. His friend's team flew in by helicopter, made their way to the compound, and stormed into the room where the hostages had been imprisoned for months. The room, the folk singer said, was filthy and dark. The hostages were curled up in a corner, terrified. When the seals entered the room, they heard the gas with the hostages. They stood at the door and called to the prisoners, telling them that they were Americans. The seals asked the hostages to follow them but the hostages wouldn't. They sat there on the floor and hid their eyes in fear. They were not of healthy mind and didn't believe their rescuers were really Americans. The seals stood there not knowing what to do. They couldn't possibly carry everyone out. One of the seals, the folk singer's friend, got an idea. He put down his weapon, took off his helmet, and curled up tightly next to the other hostages, getting so close his body was touching some of theirs. 
He softened the look on his face and put his arms around them. He was trying to show them that he was one of them. None of the prison guards would have done this. He stayed there for a little while until some of the hostages started to look at him, finally meeting his eyes. The Navy Spiel whispered that they were Americans and were there to rescue them. Will you follow us, he said. The hero stood to his feet and one of the hostages did the same, then another, until all of them were willing to go. The story ends with all the hostages safe on an American aircraft carrier. Here's Miller's reflection. I never liked it when preachers said we had to follow Jesus. Sometimes they would make him sound angry. But I like the story the folk singer told. I like the idea of Jesus becoming man so that we would be able to trust him. And I like that he healed people and loved them and cared deeply about how people were feeling. When I understood that the decision to follow Jesus was very much like the decision the hostages had to make to follow their rescuer, I knew then that I needed to decide whether or not I would follow him. The decision was simple once I asked myself, is Jesus the son of God? Are we being held captive in a world run by Satan in a world filled with brokenness and sin? And do I believe Jesus can rescue me from this condition? You see, the news of the gospel is Jesus stepped into our Egypt. He stepped into our sinful world in order to rescue us from that place, to take us to God's eternal home. Friends, the good news is you don't have to be stuck in the escape room. Jesus comes into the escape room. He solves the puzzles you could never solve. He does what's necessary, and then he moves to lead you out. And when you trust in him, Man, life takes on a whole new freedom. Suddenly, the escape room isn't so scary anymore because you know you have the promise of deliverance. Jesus is the greater deliverer, and he wants to lead you home. Will you follow him? I pray that you would. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.